I want to say thanks to David Barton. I uh, am only disappointed that I have to follow him. It is not an enviable position on the program to follow David Barton because I don't know anyone in America who is a more effective communicator. And I just wish that every single young person in America would be able to be under his tutelage and understand something about who we really are as a nation. Uh, I, I almost wish that there would be like a simultaneous telecast and all Americans would be forced, forced at gunpoint no less, to listen to every David Barton message and I think our country would be better for it. I wish it happened. Listen, all, all I can tell you is that sometime in February or March, uh, Calista and I and our family were making this decision. Um, as you know, I'm a great admirer of your work and of all you've done to teach Americans about their history and about the, the roots of American freedom. And uh, I can assure you that if we do decide to run next year, uh, we're probably going to call you and say, no, we need your help and we need your advice and we need your counsel. So uh, you and your wife, uh, it's more than a voting matter. If we, if we end up deciding to run, David, we're going to need you. You have been uh, a dear friend and trusted advisor. I think you are one of the most um, uh, important men alive today. I think you and your wife, Cheryl, have done more to save our country than most people alive because you have been preserving its history for a very long time. You know, he's he is the Where's Waldo of the movement. He's he's a little bit everywhere. When last we left America's premier historian, he was fending off accusations of bad history from outside his world of influence. He started out his career confusing correlation and causation and followed that by calling Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist a speech. He said that Jefferson called the wall of separation a one-directional wall and that Jefferson favored the state being guided by the church. He had to retract a dozen quotes from his first book of history because they were untethered to primary sources. In response, he denied fault and claimed to do better work than professionally trained historians. Overall, our man from Alito was not off to a great start in his quest to become America's premier historian. Or was he? One of the places that devotes a significant amount of money to Barton's Wall Builders and Wall, and wall Builders presentation, which appears to be a separate organization, is the Lindsay family, which is, uh, they have a large family foundation and they've directed millions of dollars to his initiatives over multiple years. Now, Joan Lindsay is the member of the Council for National Policy, which, as you know, connects, as uh, Rich DeVos uh, said, the doers and the donors of the Christian right. It's um, a very powerful organization that brings together leaders of different organizations with funders, and she's a Gold Circle member. And if you look at the Form 990s for their family foundation, you can see that they donated millions of dollars to Barton's Wall Builders, as well as to something called Wall Builders Presentation, which is a Barton family initiative and is staffed by multiple family members. So Wall Builders Presentation has other donors too. And in uh, 2021, they took in nearly $6 million. That was journalist Catherine Stewart. We will hear more from her later in this episode. She points out that being America's premier historian was also a business, and business was good. As we shall see, 
Barton must have prayed the prayer of Jabez because his territory was greatly enlarged. His opportunity seemed to grow along with the number of his errors. The more he made, the more evangelical leaders wanted to feature him. The more evangelical audiences flocked to hear him, the more Republican politicians wanted his endorsement and involvement in get-out-the-vote campaigns. Good thing God didn't call him to fly planes. Barton didn't always have the facts, but he did have the formula for success in the evangelical political world. This is Warren Throckmorton, co-author along with Michael Coulter of Getting Jefferson Right, fact-checking claims about Thomas Jefferson. You're listening to the podcast series Telling Jefferson Lies, a story about how history can be hijacked for ideological and political purposes. We begin with the extraordinary story of how David Barton's best-selling book about Thomas Jefferson was removed from publication due to historical errors. In this series, we also tell the story of getting Jefferson right, which was our response to the Jefferson lies and how that story continues with the second edition, which came out on November 1st, 2023. This is also a broader story about the surge of Christian nationalism and the misuse of history, which often goes along with it. Finally, we examine the consequences of believing myths and failing to get history right. This is episode two, Where's Waldo the Anointed? My book, uh, my last latest book, The Power Worshippers, I call David Barton the, quote, where's Waldo of the of the Christian nationalist movement. I don't know if any, any listeners have kids, but if you do, you'd be familiar with the book, Where's Waldo? And there's always a group of people and Waldo's in there somewhere. <laughs> that again is Catherine Stewart. She has been tracking the rise of Barton's influence for many years. Her book, The Power Worshippers, has been adapted into a movie titled God and Country, produced by Rob Reiner. It premieres February 16th in theaters nationwide. She's right. Barton is a ball of fire. 
So he has sat on the boards of or served as an advisor to so many different of these initiatives, such as the Texas State Board of Education, where he was sort of uh, had a incredible, like basically big footing all over the board's discussion of American history and, and social studies curricula. He is a, a leader in Project Blitz, a wide uh, ranging legislative initiative to degrade the separation of church and state, essentially. Remember the Texas bill, which would require a copy of the Ten Commandments to be displayed in every classroom? That was a Project Blitz initiative. Three groups, Barton's Wall Builders, the National Legal Foundation, and the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation, constructed a manual for like-minded folks to follow in order to create Christian quasi-establishments in their states. In the Project Blitz playbook, there are model governor's proclamations which purport to establish the Christian influence on the state. One would declare a Christian Heritage Week. Another would discourage homosexuality. There are also model bills such as the Ten Commandment Bill. Another model bill would prohibit rules or laws which limit a state-licensed health care worker's speech or religious expression. One practical implication is that Christian counselors might be allowed to preach to their clients, or worse, refuse to serve clients they disagree with, even though professional ethics codes prohibit imposing religious beliefs on clients. In a related action, the Texas legislature recently passed a bill allowing school districts to substitute chaplains for school counselors. Although these de facto establishments of religion do not create a theocracy in the technical sense, I think Stewart is correct. They degrade the separation of church and state. Okay, now back to Catherine Stewart. Where is Waldo? He's been a consultant to the Republican, uh, to the RNC. He's worked with the American Renewal Project, which is closely aligned with the hyper-conservative American Family Association, uh, bringing, offering these briefings that bring together conservative clergy with right-wing politicians to collaborate on academic initiatives. He has was a very close advisor of Steve Green and the Green family, which is the family behind the Hobby Lobby Corporation, when they decided to devote a, a significant chunk of their money to building Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. In an earlier time, of course, he served with Gingrich, Newt Gingrich as a co-director of a group called Renewing American Leadership and and many others. He's just done so much stuff. But basically, he has really played an outsized role. I can't think of another single individual in our time who's played a more important role in indoctrinating not just clergy, but also Republican politicians, sort of conservative Republican politicians in his mythical history. He works also very closely with over seven mountains dominionists, like the folks at the Truth and Liberty Coalition. He runs political training courses for young people. This might be more than some listeners want to know, but I am going to run down a few more of Barton's projects and accomplishments since he pulled the 1989 book Myth of Separation from publication and replaced it with the 1996 book Original Intent. Make sure you listen to the first episode to get that story. I think it will help to prepare us for the Jefferson Lies episode coming up and perhaps help to account for why peer review just doesn't apply to Barton. From 1997 to 2006, 
Barton was vice chair of the Texas Republican Party. In that role, he participated in the process of crafting the national platforms for the Republican Party. That's something he continued to do through the Trump years. Here is Barton talking about his success in getting his agenda incorporated in the 2012 Republican platform. Well, the platform does mean a whole lot. This is what conservatives will go fight for. You see, in politics, a lot of times your moderates and your liberals will give money. They don't give time. Conservatives don't give much money, but they give a ton of time. And if you don't have people who are willing to go out and knock on doors and make phone calls and, and do blogs and do Facebook and social media, you don't win elections. You can't win it just with money. You've got to have troops on the ground. This is what motivates troops on the ground. And this is the most conservative in my lifetime. Now, I was one of the guys who helped write this thing, but to show you how conservative... I made 71 motions to add to this platform, and 70 of them got passed. Sometime around 2002, he helped Rick Green start the Patriot Academy, a constitutional and firearms training program for young people. Also, in 2002, Barton provided testimony in state legislatures to attempt to organize support for a proposal to Congress for an amendment to the Constitution permitting voluntary school prayer. Republican leaders found that Barton communicated well with evangelical pastors and congregations and had few qualms about turning churches into local campaign headquarters. So in 2004, Barton was hired by the Republican National Committee to network with Christian pastors. One report said he held over 300 meetings with pastors on the Republican account and told them it was legal for them to endorse Bush for president to their congregations as long as the pastor said he was speaking for himself personally. In 2005, Tennessee Senator Bill Frist invited his Senate colleagues and their wives to attend a Capitol tour led by Barton. The invitation said the participants would be led by, quote, a historian noted for his detailed research, unquote. Also in 2005, Time Magazine named him to their list of top 25 most influential evangelicals. About the list members, Time wrote, quote, Time's list focuses on those whose influence is on the rise or who have carved out a singular role, unquote. Time's description of Barton said in part, quote, Many historians dismiss his thinking, But Barton's advocacy organization, Wall Builders, and his relentless stream of publications, court amicus briefs, and books like The Myth of Separation have made him a hero to millions, In his bio, Barton just said that Time Magazine called him a, quote, hero to millions. Given what the first 15 years of his history career looked like, it's remarkable that he was given such soft treatment by Time. Time even published one of his trademark false history stories, the one about Congress printing the first English-language Bible for schools. Time wrote, quote, Barton conducts tours of the Capitol, during which he shows his rare copy of the Bible that Congress once printed for the use in the schools, unquote. In fact, that rare copy of the Bible was not printed by Congress, but by Robert Aiken. Aiken pitched it to Congress as useful to schools, but that was his idea. It didn't come from Congress. It may seem like a small difference, but in Barton's hands, the Aiken Bible is a sign that the founders really wanted the Bible in schools, and the separation of church and state does not forbid it. 
He specifically says that in his speeches. And one of the rarest works in our collection, or in any collection in America, matter of fact, any collection in the world, is this one right here. This is the first ever Bible printed in the English language in America. Now, do you know when it was printed? 1782. Do you know who printed this Bible? The Congress of the United States. Cong Wait a minute, 1782, that's when our founding fathers were in Congress. Why would they have printed a Bible? Well, it tells you right in the opening here that this is a Bible, quote, for the use of schools. You want to tell me the founding fathers didn't want the Bible in schools? I hold here in my hand the Bible they printed for the use of our schools. 20,000 were originally printed. There are 52 still remaining in the world today. But this is absolute proof the founders wanted the Bible in schools. And their records are clear on this Bible and what they intended and et cetera, et cetera. It makes for an aha moment in his presentations, except... It is mostly wrong and completely misleading. In fact, Robert Aiken was a printer by trade and had printed some of the minutes of Congress. In a letter to Congress, Aiken wrote, quote, that in every well-regulated government in Christendom, the sacred books of the Old and New Testament, commonly called the Holy Bible, are printed and published under the authority of the sovereign powers in order to prevent the fatal confusion that would arise and the alarming injuries the Christian faith might suffer from the spurious and erroneous editions of divine revelation, unquote. Aiken then informed Congress that he, quote, both begun and made considerable progress in a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of schools, unquote. To repeat, Aiken said that to Congress. Congress did not write that to Aiken. In the reply from Congress, his request to be the official printer was ignored. Congress assigned the chaplains to review the work, which they did. They agreed it was accurately printed, and in the end, Congress passed a resolution which Aiken was free to reproduce. The resolution read, quote, Resolved that the United States and Congress assembled highly approved the pious and laudable undertaking of Mr. Aiken as subservient to the interest of religion as well as an instance of the progress of the arts in this country, and being satisfied from the above report of its care and accuracy in the execution of the work, they recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States, and hereby authorize him to publish this recommendation in the manner he shall think proper. Unquote. There's nothing there about schools, Given that it was the first English Bible printed in the new nation, Congress gave it a nudge. However, it wasn't printed, funded, or intended for the use of schools by Congress. Unfortunately, the Congressional commendation didn't help Aiken as much as he'd hoped. He ended up losing money on the venture. In future segments, I will unpack the story and others like it even more. But for now, it illustrates one feature of Christian nation storytelling. Some of the details are true. There was an Aiken Bible, and Congress did pass a resolution recommending it as beneficial to religion and as an artistic accomplishment. However, one has to exaggerate and make up details that didn't happen to make it useful in today's church-state debates. For even the historical fiction to matter, one has to ignore that the event happened before the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment were ratified in 1791. What Congress did in 1782 is interesting, but the importance of it for what we do now is limited by what Congress and the nation did afterwards. 
In 2009, he and Rick Green launched Wall Builders Live, a daily radio show. It was on that radio show in September 2010 that Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich said he would need to call on Barton if Gingrich ran for president. That sometime in February or March, uh, Callista and I and our family were making this decision. Um, as you know, I'm a great admirer of your work and of all you've done to teach Americans about their history and about the, the roots of American freedom. And uh, I can assure you that if we do decide to run next year, uh, we're promptly going to call you and say, no, we need your help and we need your advice and we need your counsel. So uh, you and your wife, uh, it's more than a voting matter. If we, if we end up deciding to run, David, we're going to need you. And then in 2009 and 2010, there was the battle over Texas social studies standards. According to Catherine Stewart, you could find our Waldo at the center of it. You know, when I was researching my last book in this field, The Good News Club, which focuses on the religious right and their assault on public education, it was like around 2010, and I was attending hearings of the Texas State Board of Education regarding revisions to their American history and social studies curricula. And the right-wing majority on that board were, they were directly guided by David Barton. Now they had a panel, uh, a supposed committee of expert reviewers that consisted of ostensibly academic experts and others with this kind of specialized knowledge. But it was clear that the recommendations of only one person trumped everybody else, and that's David Barton. He was actually allowed to input his uh, comments separately from the curriculum committee that are supposed to be like the real experts, right? And it was kind of astonishing to see how seriously the far-right block on the Texas State Board of Education took takes our real history. At the time, by the way, Texas standards really mattered because they were the largest purchaser of textbooks in the country. So the sort of tradition was that all the textbook publishers would meet in Texas to listen to the history, you know, debates about the standards. And that's what, what they would use to craft their, you know, updates to their curricula. And then from there, it would go all over the country. And the Texas State Board of Ed was dominated by our sort of far-right majority, and their disdain for our history was terrifying. One board member, Don McElroy, I remember, he said, someone has to stand up to the experts. Think about that. You know, he's pre presented with the facts from academic historians and other experts with very credentialed, well-knowledge that's not political, it's just sort of these are the facts, and he says, we got to stand up to this. I mean, so they were entirely motivated by Christian nationalist concerns, and the consequences were terrible. The battle over the Texas standards was long and drawn out and drew major news coverage. Governor Rick Perry in 2007 had appointed Don McElroy, a socially conservative dentist, as the chair of the Texas State Board of Education. McElroy is who Stewart referred to as the one who said someone has to stand up to the experts. His way of standing up to the experts was to appoint David Barton and Christian Nationalist Minister Peter Marshall to be advisors to the Board of Education as they were revising the social study standards. The other advisor generally appointed by the conservative members was Daniel Dreisbach from American University. The moderate to liberal members also appointed advisors, and fireworks ensued. Let's pull over and park here a minute. 
Given the troubled start to his history career, it's incredible that Barton was involved in setting history standards. With a meaning unintended by Texas Board Chair McElroy, Barton was the perfect guy to stand up to experts. If you need someone to contradict an expert in history, Barton is your man. Here's another interesting observation about the Texas Social Studies Wars. The news coverage framed the controversy more as a conflict between conservatives and liberals, as opposed to experts versus political advocates. There was very little coverage of Barton's record as a historian. I read dozens of news reports from that period, and not one mentioned the historical errors in his early books or any of the mistakes in his videos. You know, he's he is the Where's Waldo of the movement. He's he's a little bit everywhere. And and the reason is because this is a movement that is radically anti-democratic. And in order to reframe the nature of our country, what our country is about, and refra- and basically reframe the meaning of our constitution, they need an alternate history. And you know, again, his history has been debunked over and over, but the lies are too valuable to the movement to discard simply because they're not true. Stewart is right that Barton has been debunked repeatedly. In addition to those mentioned in the first episode, Tom Peters, Jim Allison, and Susan Batt started the Separation of Church and State webpage in 1996 and actively countered Barton's claims. That website became a repository for articles supporting the separation of church and state and debunking Christian nation stories. J. Brent Walker produced a detailed fact check for the Baptist Joint Committee in 2005. Chris Rada is a particularly effective and prolific fact checker who produces videos and a series of books titled Liars for Jesus. See the show notes for links to some of these resources. Although it is an uncomfortable explanation, Stewart may also be right that Barton's stories may be too valuable to the movement to discard simply because they are not accurate. Barton's history lessons provide a vision of the past which energized political action in the present. Perhaps that is one reason why criticism hasn't slowed him down. If anything, it seemed to help his status with Christian audiences. In his speeches, Barton tells his audiences that even Christian history professors such as Mark Knoll, John Fia, Barry Hankins, who have critiqued Barton for years, are not to be trusted because they are trained by pagan godless professors. What happens is so many of the professors we have in Christian universities were trained by the pagans at other universities. They just happen to be a new pagan trained at a Christian university. I mean, it's extremely hostile now, even at Christian universities. So the problem is this is a real danger for our kids, what we see on university campuses. So this is where we're getting our information about America and our view of American history and our view of faith. And I think there's something really dangerous about that. And, uh, you know, it's the, it's like the it is the kind of confidence you see in a lot of churches, especially larger mega churches of a certain political orientation. Like this, you know, man of God, and it's always a man of God, is the ultimate authority on these issues. That's Randall Stevens, professor of American studies at the University of Oslo in Norway. Along with Carl Guyberson, Randall wrote a book titled The Anointed about how evangelicals assign expertise. So Carl Guyberson, my co-author, and I, we we both saw a similar kind of phenomenon in our fields, you know, he in, in the hard sciences and me in the humanities and specifically in history. And that's these kind of in-house experts who serve as, they're kind of like a gateway to a knowledge community for 
evangelicals and fundamentalists in the U.S. So in my case, I, I was talking to him about David Barton, and then he was talking to me about Ken Ham, who is part of the Answers in Genesis, the creationist outfit that now has, you know, actually it was happening at the time that we were writing the book. The Creation Museum was was being built in Kentucky. And then as part of the book as well, one of the things we did is we wanted to try to talk about how there's this sort of parallel culture within evangelicalism that has developed that allows these ideas to flourish that have been discredited in professional communities. So it creates a kind of hothouse for these notions to persist and to thrive and even grow As I pointed out, Barton's political value had already been recognized by the Republican Party. I believe I can safely say that his endorsement was as valued back in the early 2000s as Donald Trump's is now, especially in local political races. A Barton endorsement meant you were rock solid on issues of importance to most Tea Party and social conservatives. Let's stop a minute. Am I really saying that it didn't much matter if Barton's content was true? Just that it was useful politically and made people feel better about being in their in-group, their tribe? Am I saying that many people, particularly people who are worried and stressed about social change, might be guided more by feeling than fact when assigning expertise? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real conundrum, but it... I guess it has to make us think about how knowledge is cultural and it, you know, it doesn't have to have a direct relationship to evidence or, you know, what, what I might think is rational or, or what you might think is, uh, that it's, there's a feeling to it in a way. It sounds more correct, I suppose. The, the thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about our conversation today. I thought about that pivotal moment in the Trump administration when Kellyanne Conway talked about alternative facts. And it does seem like there's something there, you know. And maybe David Barton's readers or listeners would think that, you know, you're being too precious about these minor details and these things don't really matter because the because the the big story that he's trying to tell is more important than than these things like they'd say okay well you remove that if that's not true and it's still overall uh, the picture is true that he's presenting uh, America is, is a, a, you know lesser than uh, it's it's be, it's become corrupt because of this decline because of secularization because of the influence of humanists and secular liberals if that's more important than these other than the smaller things then you know they they probably could put up with a lot of misinformation or lies sticking up for facts may be valuable for many reasons but julie ingersoll professor of religious studies at university of north florida agrees with randall stevens it may not lead to a change of mind barton and his views about history like you can you could have a whole conversation where somebody went through and just and you explained everything that was wrong with his 
book about Jefferson and they'd sit there and then they'd turn around tomorrow and they still believe about this stuff because it was more about identity than it was an intellectual, rational argument, right? David Barton appeals to evangelicals who deeply resonate with his message. They know America was founded as a nation just for them, no matter what historians say. By altering the record and or slanting the meaning, he gives his audience a sense that they are getting special knowledge that has been hidden from them by godless liberals. He frames the situation as a battle of good conservatives who always tell the truth versus evil liberals who hide and deceive people, rather than a situation where some claims are correct and some are incorrect and truth doesn't take ideological sides. Listen to some of the audience members react to one of his Capitol tours. The David Barton tour of the Capitol, that was awesome. It was, it was enlightening. It was awesome. There was so much that I didn't know. It opened up our eyes where the media will only give you one side, but we got to see what America was built on. And even though we knew it, we got to see in depth. And just the information that he gave us, just it blew my mind. One of the highlights for me was going to the Capitol building and getting some history about what's been going on uh, as far as how this nation was started. And, and we've been lied to, and that's the, the honest to God truth. And just not and knowing that, has, really I'm a little angry about it. And, uh, and I'm at a point of, of getting the education that I need. The irony meter was broken by that last comment. That fellow said he had been lied to, and indeed he had been misled that very day. Barton's ability to sway evangelical voters appeals to conservative politicians and those who fund them. He may not be an expert in history, but he is an expert in using history to create a brand. He's built up a name for himself within the a far right and a right wing political community in Texas, and he's he sort of parlayed that sort of his his uh, being a known entity in in this political community into being an expert on American history and on the Constitution and on the founding. That I think that he's you know he's a good speaker and he addresses the kinds of concerns that a lot of white evangelicals have. So it seems like. This politicization of knowledge here is a really important factor of this phenomenon. He just has he he's managed to create a kind of brand in a way for himself through wall builders of being a trusted authority on the American past. And he, you know, he he was elevated by, you know, media and political figures like. Uh, Glenn Beck and Mike Huckabee and others who, who looked to him for expertise. In 2010, Barton became a regular on Glenn Beck's wildly popular Founders Friday show and generated controversy among fundamentalist Christians by vouching for Beck's faith. For the most part, Barton succeeded in making Beck an acceptable Latter-day Saint. Barton had been a regular guest on Fox News shows, such as the Mike Huckabee show, before he joined Beck. However, his partnership with Beck significantly extended his reach and influence. The partnership emerged at just the right time for Barton. Beck was so popular with social conservatives that he left his Fox News gig and started his own network in 2011, initially called Glenn Beck TV. He later renamed it The Blaze. 
He conducted mega rallies called Restoring Honor, Restoring Love, Restoring Unity, and Restoring Courage. Barton was there by his side. Beck had this to say about Barton in 2011. You have been uh, a dear friend and trusted advisor. I think you are one of the most um, uh, important men alive today. I think you and your wife, Cheryl, have done more to save our country than most people alive because you have been preserving its history for a very long time. Former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee echoed back in extolling Barton's importance. I want to say thanks to David Barton. I uh, am only disappointed that I have to follow him. (laughs) It is not an enviable position on the program to follow David Barton because I don't know anyone in America who is a more effective communicator. And I just wish that every single young person in America would be able to be under his tutelage and understand something about who we really are as a nation. Uh, I I almost wish that there would be like a simultaneous telecast and all Americans would be forced, forced at gunpoint, no less, to listen to every David Barton message. And I think our country would be better for it. I wish it happened. Arguably, in 2011, Barton was at the top of his game. In the minds of his admirers, he was America's premier historian. If anything, the fact that actual historians didn't see it that way enhanced the brand. It was easy to find Waldo. He was anointed and he was everywhere. For years, Barton's books were self-published by wall builders. However, sometime in 2011, Christian publisher Thomas Nelson approached Barton to write a history book. They were looking for a conservative parallel to progressive author Howard Zinn and his successful book on the history of the United States. It was Barton's idea to write about Jefferson. In April 2012, Thomas Nelson published The Jefferson Lies. In that book, Barton told his readers that Jefferson did not father children with Sally Hemings, that he founded the University of Virginia to be a trans-denominational Christian college, that Jefferson was orthodox in his religious beliefs during his presidency, that Jefferson signed his presidential documents in the year of our Lord Christ, that Virginia law prohibited him from freeing enslaved people, and that he was a civil rights icon. However, by August of 2012, just four months after the book was originally published, Thomas Nelson decided to stop publishing the book and to completely remove it from their catalog. The book was selling well. In fact, the book was rising on the New York Times bestseller list. So why did they remove it from publication? How did Thomas Nelson go from a stubborn supporter of a best-selling book on Thomas Jefferson by America's premier historian to deciding to do something that publishers almost never do? And what was the fallout from such a fall from grace? Stay tuned. Jackie moved to Rome in early, got married and 
In the next episode, The Cataclysm, Michael Coulter will join us and we will talk about getting Jefferson right and what happened to the Jefferson lies. Today's closing song is The End of the Street by Roman Candle. Telling Jefferson Lies theme song is The World Awaits Us All, also by Roman Candle. Background music was provided by Jonas Fair, Jonathan Swain, and Warren Throckmorton. See the show notes for more credits. Telling Jefferson Lies is brought to you by the second edition of Getting Jefferson Right by Warren Throckmorton and Michael Coulter. For more information about the book, go to gettingjeffersonright.com and be sure to like the episode and subscribe to the podcast. Also, send a podcast link to a friend and help get the word out. Thanks for listening. Some people don't know a thing. Some people don't learn a thing till they walk to the very end of the street. Street.